This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Thursday. Time to check in with all things municipal. And housing is top of mind for everyone running. And in addition to the outsized cost of real estate, rents have been rising almost exponentially. Earlier this week, the federal government unveiled measures intended to fight inflation, including a one-time $500 subsidy for renters who qualify. So how much help will that be? And speaking of housing, John Tory's main mayoral challenger, Gil Peñalosa, was thrown out of Nathan Phillips Square when he tried to make a housing announcement there. So is his outrage justified or is that grandstanding given the rules that apparently apply to everyone? Or did it have the desired effect? Because we're going to talk about it. And if you want to talk about it and other things, the numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now it's time to tune into the town. And now I'd like to welcome David Crombie, former mayor of Toronto, Councillor James Pasternak of Ward 6 York Centre, and Lauren O'Neill, senior news editor of Blog TO. Hi, everyone. Hi, Levine. Hi, how are you doing? We're doing great. And a special shout out to Lauren sitting across to me. The bride just got <laughs> married on Saturday in a fabulous wedding and she, she's already hard at work. Yeah, <laughs> fantastic. I mean, the news never, news never sleeps. I, I can't stay away. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you and congratulations. So, Lauren, let's begin with you. So, this $500 one time payment, I mean, it is for people who have a family income, net income of 35000 or below 20000 for a single person. So, uh, is this going to help? many people who are squeezed. I mean, in this city, absolutely not. I mean, $500 total. So that's not every month. That is one, a one-time payment of $500. That's quite low, I think, for, you know, rents in Toronto. The average one bedroom is nearing $2,000 a month. So I don't think it will provide much relief. Um, the other caveat is that the individuals must be paying at least or more than 30% of their rent. So if they are already in community-assisted housing, they might not be paying that much and not therefore not be eligible. Um, Trudeau says it's going to help 1.8 million Canadians, but I- I'm not quite aware of the rent situations in other cities. Maybe it's them, but I don't really see it helping a lot of people in Toronto to the extent that it will actually make life more affordable. Mm-hmm. Um, so... David Crombie, given it it looks like it's kind of a drop in the bucket and we understand that the government can't be paying for everything, but is it even worth doing given that it it looks like it's pretty marginal to me anyway? Yeah, I I think I think Lauren captured it. It it is a drop in the bucket. It's It's a sort of a faint gesture. It could be of use for some people, but it does remind us, of course, is that well, there's been a lot of talk about large programs coming from the federal and provincial and local governments on housing, how far we are away from any sense of reality of where we need to be. Mm-hmm. Councillor Pasternak, what's your view? And uh, do you have constituents who are screaming about the price of a rental? Yeah, I think this $500 handout is is, try, is like putting Band-Aid on an amputation. I mean, it's it's really not going to do much, and all it's going to do is stoke inflation, which we're trying to get a handle on. Uh, when it comes to rent, you, you need short-term solutions, but you also need long-term solutions. And, um, you know, when, you, when you're going, if government is going to help out, and there are limits to what it can do, you should really look at some of the underlying costs, such as uh, utilities uh, and where where there could be help because we control 
uh, many of the electricity and gas suppliers. So that's an area where where we might be able to keep uh, downward pressure on costs. But the $500, I see it just making matters worse, false hopes, and it's not a long-term solution to our rental problem. And David Crombie, do you think, do you agree that it will fuel inflation? Well, uh, James is probably a better economist than I am. Uh, I think, generally speaking, you have to worry about any increase in in, uh, in public spending, which we need to do in some areas. But we have to be very careful because any con- any contribution to inflation is going to make a really a really coming difficult situation much worse. So there there needs to be a while we while we spend some money on necessary things like any household, you have to be really careful about what and where and when. Okay, well, uh, speaking of housing, let's uh, turn to the Gil Penulosa caper. And uh, he was trying to do an announcement at Nathan Phillips Square, and he had it arranged, you know, the Toronto sign, which is huge. So he set up, partially set up his own sign that said Gil 4, and he had a microphone, which is against the rules, right? He he could talk to media there, but you can't set up a microphone. And he said it's not fair because uh, the mayor, John Tory, can make announcements, and he compared it to an announcement that the mayor made about an increase in anti-Semitism. So uh, is this just grandstanding? I mean, even the mayor, uh, as recently as last weekend, he rented our place to make a campaign announcement because you're not supposed to do it on city property. So, uh, James Pasternak, what do you think of uh, the Penulosa caper? Yeah, so it, it is correct. You cannot actively campaign on, on municipal property. And the, the, the paradox we have at the City of Toronto, it's not like other levels of government where there's a writ period. When the writ drops, you're no longer an MPP and you're no longer an MP. At the City of Toronto, in our election period, which is six months long, you continue to work as a mayor and a councillor. And I can tell you that uh, if, if we were not allowed to perform our, our municipal functions in those positions, the city would feel it. Um, so the mayor is correct. Um, um, when he is playing the role of the mayor or acting as his role in the mayor and he's doing uh, city announcements on city property, that's fully within the rule. When, when you, cam- you cannot campaign on municipal uh, property, um, sometimes you can, you can be in front of a school and hand out literature as parents come and go, uh, but you could not bl- block uh, the public right of way. I mean, that's really the rule there. When it comes to the microphones, yeah, you need you need uh, a noise exemption uh, if you're going to amplify voice. I mean, that's just part of our bylaws. So um, it it is an it isn't an odd oddity of municipal government where we continue to operate as elected officials, representative officials, while we're campaigning. But the city rule is pretty strict. Uh- David, I know you're a Gil Penulosa fan, uh, as many of us are, uh, but what do you think about this? James is right. Uh, it's a bylaw that's necessary. You cannot allow campaigning, people setting up campaign boards and so on. The place would just be clogged and it would be wrong. So the bylaw is there, and it, and it is a, 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 an awkward one to, to police and to, to make sure that it, that it works. But I, I think it, the bylaw is a good one. It's necessary. And I think uh, Gil uh, was uh, uh, being a little more enterprising uh, than uh, probably he should have been. But, but on the other hand, as you point out, um, he, he probably got what he was looking for, and that is a little exposure of his own thoughts. Lauren, should he apologize or anything like that? In my personal opinion, no. I mean, I understand that there are rules in place. You cannot bring microphones and speakers and certainly alter signs, which they didn't alter. He just enhanced momentarily. <laughs> um, but, you know, between August 1st and October 24th, that's a, that's a thing. You can't campaign. You can have informal scrums. This was not an informal scrum as evidenced by the presence of microphones and speakers. That said, I mean, he was making a housing announcement related to his platform. And I mean, a lot of people, from what I'm seeing online, believe that municipal places should be, you know, free for everyone. And there are protests all the time in that space. People with speakers, microphones, bands. That is not necessarily a, you know, campaign activity. But I think in the end, just like David said, we're all talking about it now. And so it it worked out in the end, like it's all over the news because he was not kicked out, but 
asked to relocate. So that's kicked out. That's kicked out. Yeah. So basically, that just got him more attention for his platform than anything. Yeah. Well, good. Good on you, Gil, for that. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I, I heard, and I didn't check this out, that he also, or, or someone in his campaign, actually painted a campaign slogan on a crosswalk. Oh, that would be bad. No, that's no good. Sorry. That's no good. No, you can't. <laughs> yeah, I'll look into that. I hadn't heard that, but yeah, that that's definitely yeah. not legal. Okay, and Lauren, there's there's another thing you've been looking into, and uh, people who listen here have probably heard me say that I have no faith in three one one. I will not waste my time calling it, and you have proof of that. <laughs> that uh, I think the name of the person, Chris Moisey, yes. who is a candidate running for city council saw a damaged speed bump uh, downtown Sackville Street north of Girard mm-hmm. that used to be near our old station called 311 and got a message that the speed hump would be fixed on September the 11th 2026 at 3.18 p.m. specifically, <laughs> which is how you know it's an automated system. So, yeah, exactly what you said, Chris Moisey. He's a TDSB trustee and candidate for Ward 13 for councillor. Saw this damaged speed pump while he was out campaigning and decided to report it on- online to 311, as people often do. And then he got this automated, you know, your service request has been submitted. Estimated service delivery time, 3.18 p.m., September 11th, 2026. Estimated day delivery, four years. And um, he thought that was ridiculous, obviously. Put it online. And then so we contacted city staff about it. And they said that, you know, they were looking into it and that they had investigated and the repairs would be made in the next couple of weeks because now it's getting media attention i maybe it would have been anyways i don't know but then they also confirmed that they will be reviewing their automated email system to and i quote ensure service standards are communicated accurately to those submitting service requests so i think they're kind of saying you know our automated system messed up uh that's not our actual standard but i mean it does definitely leave a sour taste in the mouths of people who contact 311 i mean i've never had success getting them to come and pick up dead raccoons off of my street near the park so or anything anything I'm, or anything yeah. or success picking up the phone and is there uh, i mean i've i've been saying this and and i know i risk getting flack you know are there actual people working behind it I mean, I've spoken with them, but they're always just telling me to call Toronto Animal Control. Like, the raccoon is dead. It's been on the road for three days. Children are terrified. Like, please just take it away. Oh, well, that we punt it to a different department. Um, I don't know. But you talk to them. I have. You're doing better better than I am. (laughs) Well, a couple times. James? Yeah, so the, the when it comes to service levels, the, the city is, is, is facing a perfect storm. We have about 3,400, 3,300 vacancies, which we're having great difficult filling. We have a very challenging fiscal situation uh, where uh, we're carrying uh, debt a deficit from this current budget year, uh, which we're not supposed to do, which we've got to clean up. Uh, I think the, the working from home uh, has got to end. Uh, the people who coordinate many of these services in our public service um, have been working from home too long, and they should have been brought back earlier. Uh, the former uh, city manager uh, felt that it was working well. We, we in our uh, the councillors' offices, uh, didn't think it was. And of course, uh, the last thing I would add is the shrinkage of council. I predicted when I first heard about that that city services would decline, and that's exactly what happened. I total. I have to agree with you on the working from home. I mean, uh, I gather sometimes it's not the fault of the people. I say in quotes working. Sometimes the systems aren't really geared to it. But uh, you know, and and again, I think there's a different standard for people who are on full pay in public jobs. And yeah, they they've got to be brought back. David, am I too harsh? No. Well, some needs to be brought back, but I I think the situation begs for a, a a more general approach of people being able to find ways in which they sort out, depending on what business they're in, depending on what their requirements are to serve their job. Um, there are differences. I think those differences need to be observed and understood and, and worked in rather than simply ordering people around. Uh, so I, I'm one of those who step, like, like us to step back and say, 
look, things are changing. The work environment is changing. Jobs are changing. Attitudes of people towards their jobs is changing. And we need to respect that. So I'm hoping that the city as a major employer is going to be able to cast a wider net than simply assuming that their job is to order other people back to their job. Lauren? Uh, I mean, in terms of 311 specifically, I, I've never, before the pandemic or after or during the pandemic, it's kind of been the same experience for me. Um, I can say I me was... Me too. Yeah, like, I mean, it's never great. I was at City Hall a couple of weeks ago. I'm... Um, last week, last week to get my wedding license, my marriage license. And, and I can't say like, you know, there weren't a lot of people working, but the ones who are working were like overwhelmingly positive and nice and helpful, which kind of surprised me based on my experiences with the city over the phone. Like they were all so nice and so organized. We were in and out literally split. So I don't know, maybe there is something to be said for working in the office, um, interacting with people. I feel more as like a citizen of the city. I feel more taken care of and seen when I'm directly talking to someone at city hall than when I'm just frantically trying to get through on the phone or by email to like literally anyone who will listen to me. I mean, you know, I totally agree that if there are jobs that can be done from home or done from home part of the time, then fine. But but this is a case where these jobs are not getting done. Yeah. You know, you cannot run a complex organization like the city of Toronto from kitchen tables. And the, the management who coordinate our frontline staff are, are still working primarily from home. And it's time they returned to City Hall. Okay, David, you're in the minority here. Do you want to have a last word on this? No, no, I respect the wisdom of other people. Uh, but, I, uh, but it seems to me that, that there's, a difference, there's a difference in where, where we're heading. Uh, I think it's even got to do with how we're organizing streets. I saw the item we're talking about as a question of where the city is these days and, and its care and attention to, to clean and careful streets. And, uh, and it seems to me that, that that's something that's not had the attention in the last little while that, that, it, that, that it should have had and had historically. Part of that is because the streets themselves are being absolutely being transformed. Travel portion of the street, now you could be having a beer on one, let alone... <laughs> so it seems to me that a lot of things are changing and we need to have attitudes that change with it. Hmm. Well, um, in terms of having a beer, uh, that's going to end soon uh, by Mother Nature, even though I think it's a great thing uh, to to have that cafe T.O., I think. I think hot, uh, hot, hot toddies might, might work. Okay. Well, yeah, hot toddies. Hey, we did it during the heaters. pandemic. Sorry. Hot toddies and heaters. I'm looking at the clock. We're almost out of time. And, oh, gee, I hate to end on a, a, a sad note, but we, we saw these terrible shootings and we hear all the same things after everyone some people say you know lock them up and throw away the keys and some people say oh underlying societal causes um uh james pasternak uh do you have a view is anything going to change after this well, I'll tell you, it is absolutely tragic when you see either a singular mass shooting uh, in our region, in our country. Um, what we uh, understand is there's a number of systemic problems. Um, certainly when it comes to border control, um, guns are being smuggled in here into the country. Uh, we need a strengthened border border screening and process to, to um, catch these gun runners and make sure they don't make it onto uh, our streets. I would say there's another weakness with our criminal justice system. Um, you know, when you looked at the mass stabbing in Saskatchewan, one of the perpetrators who, who ended up being killed had 59 convictions, um, many of them violent crimes, and he was out on the streets. And, um, you know, there, there comes a point when you have to say uh, enough, enough is enough. So those are two two of the issues that uh, that certainly we hear about uh, at, at City Hall, uh, keeping illegal guns off our streets, beefing up law enforcement and criminal justice reform. Lauren? I think I agree. Like, we're kind of failing our, our public in some way in terms of safety when people like this uh, person who shot and killed Constable Andrew Hong had a two-year criminal record, had previous history of, of violence. Um, Peel and Halton Regional Police had a press conference this morning saying that yeah. he was waiting at a Tim Hortons for two hours before he went and killed him. Like, it's just... Yeah, how are people just getting carte blanche to, with with so many crimes under their belts, just go and 
you know, be in the public like this. It's, it's tragic, obviously so tragic whenever anyone dies, including, you know, police officers, but also including, you know, members of the public. And and I've never seen an emergency alert go out when there has been a shooting when, you know, a young teenager in North Toronto has been killed as a result of gang violence. So I was kind of, I mean, not surprised because I know like it's a big deal when a police officer is killed, but I think it's just, it's tragic. It's, it's highlighting this gun problems gun violence problem in a way that is bringing more attention to it. But I think that we need to think of everyone who's a victim of gun violence because there are so many people in Toronto being Abs- shot and killed absolute, every day. Absolutely. Uh, David, what's your view? And of course, the lawyers say you can't keep all of these people in jail indefinitely. No, I, I think James is right on like on the on the question of, of, the, of the criminal justice system and how it goes about its work. I think I would note that maybe it's a, more, a little more positive than the situation uh, requires. But it seems to me that the, the mayor and council in Toronto have been taking the right approach in terms of it. I've, I've been impressed with these, the, these statements made that you don't find in other places in North America. So I, I, I think people, generally speaking, uh, people in, in positions of responsibility know what needs to be done, and we need to support them when they're doing it. Okay, uh, that's all the time we have. We will talk again soon. Thank you so much, David Crombie, Councillor James Pasternak, and Lauren O'Neill. Thanks, Libby. Oh, you're Thank very you. welcome, Libby. Take care, everybody. Take care. Okay, take care. Good afternoon. Take care. Okay, we are taking a break, and when we come back, we're going to drill down on the details of the new long-term care law, which says that here in Toronto, uh, patients can be sent waiting for a nursing home to a place up to 70 kilometers away uh, from where they want to be, and they could be charged up to $400 a day. Let me give you the numbers. I know people have a lot to say about that. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. We'll be right back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. The Ford government has announced details of how they will implement Bill 7, the law that will allow hospitals to send alternate level of care patients That is, those patients who no longer need to be in a hospital but don't have anywhere to go while they wait for a long-term care placement. Well, it will allow the hospitals or government to send them to homes not of their choosing. Here in Toronto, those patients can be dispatched to facilities as far as 70 kilometers away in the north. They can be sent up to 150 kilometers away. Patients who refuse can be charged up to $400 a day to stay in hospital. And that is a number that the health minister came up with. Uh, she says, quote, in the interests of consistency. So what do you think? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And first up, we're going to talk to a number of different people with different opinions. I'm joined by Catherine Hoy, president of the Ontario Nurses Association and NDP MPP, Wayne Gates. Welcome and thanks for joining us. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for the invite. Well, Catherine, let's begin with you. What What do you think of this? Um, well, actually, coincidentally, I was just on a meeting with the uh, health minister, and um, this bill um, and my meeting. I um, I'm I don't even know if I have a word for it. Um, I um, I'm disappointed. Um, I feel uh, disrespected as a healthcare professional. I feel that the people that built Ontario are being disrespected. There's no value um, or consideration for their families. Um, I can't believe that they would actually move someone that far away from their loved one. Um, what do you say to the argument that, uh, we're in a crisis and, uh, we have to do something or the people who need, uh, acute and urgent care won't get it? Well, I agree with you absolutely on that. But 
a lot of people think that because you're elderly, you can't get out of bed. You know, it's just that you need a nursing home. You have to look at the person as a whole. A lot of the people that are in these beds that may be deemed ALC are really typical medicine patients. Nursing homes are not what they were before. They're actual, like, step-down acute care beds. And I agree we do need the beds, but you have to have a system in place to support people properly in order to move forward with it. And I do not believe that the health minister has done her due diligence and has done that. Hmm. Wayne Gates, what's your take on it? Well, I believe it's a heartless and uh, cruel, cruel, cruel bill. Uh, we knew from the beginning uh, that this government was planning to force seniors and those with disabilities out of our hospitals and into long-term care. Uh, we now know uh, how they're planning to do it. It's absolutely disgusting, quite frankly, that you're going to ask family members and seniors, uh, and rightfully so that was said that built this province, built this country, to ask them to go 75 uh kilometers, 70 kilometers in Ontario, in Ontario, into Burlington, those places from Toronto and in the north, it's going to be 150 kilometers. That's one, one hour to two and a half hours. And there's nothing more important uh, to a family member than to be able to take care of their mom, their dad, their grandparents, their mother-in-laws, their father-in-laws. Uh, I can talk real quickly. I don't know how much time I have, but I can talk real quickly about our own family where my wife uh, took a year off work to make sure that she was taking care of her dad, but it was close enough that she could go there every day, that she'd make sure that she was getting, he was getting the, the right medication, getting fed properly, being changed if that was necessary. That's what has to happen in long-term care homes because of the staffing crisis. It's absolutely terrible. Uh, I can't say it any other way, and it almost brings tears to your eyes to know that seniors are going to be asked to leave their family net and be 70 kilometers or 150 kilometers away from their family members. What's going to happen if this bill goes through, and we're hoping to continue to try to convince this uh, government that this is a terrible, heartless, cruel bill, um, that they are going to go to these homes, they're going to give up, and they're probably going to die a lot sooner than they would have. Um, thank you for sharing your personal story. Um, Catherine, one of the things that strikes me about this is my understanding is that the staffing shortages are worse in nursing homes than they are in hospitals. Absolutely, they are. So now we're going to move. There are some wonderful nursing homes out there. Uh, don't get me wrong, and I'm not saying that. But if you have facilities that have open beds, there's probably a reason why those beds are open. And also, those facilities aren't staffing to 100% capacity. They're staffing to the number of beds that they have open. So if they have 50% beds, they're staffing at 50%. Where are they going to get the staff as they move these residents in to fill the empty beds? It's only going to add to the burden to the people that are already there working that now instead of having 50 residents to take care of, maybe they have 100. Where hmm. are they going to pull the staff from? I'm going to take a call from Helen in Toronto. Hello, Helen. Hi, Libby. You know how I advocate for seniors, all seniors. If my mother had been, my mother was an hour away from here. If she'd been any further away, it would have been much more difficult to Keep an eye on everything that was happening. As, she, as I've often said, it was a wonderful nursing home. However, my mother had a rash, and the rash kept going further and further on her body. And I, every time I came up, I was taking pictures of this rash. They were going to send my mother to a dermatologist. I take her to this office, and it doesn't say dermatology anywhere on this uh, doctor's uh, in this doctor's room. And so I said, are you a dermatologist? She said, no, I'm a GP, but I handle the dermatology patients. Also, I hope you've got someone else because next week I'm moving up north. And I thought to myself, that's wonderful. I go back to the home. They're trying to make an appointment with an actual dermatologist. And this lady is not working hard enough the way I would expect her to, to make the appointment. I said, just give me the phone number and I will look after it. I got my mother 
that appointment. He found out that two medications were in conflict and there was something else she was supposed to be taking. And eventually this rash, which could have lasted a lifetime, uh, was cleared up. If my mother was a plane ride away, I couldn't do it. And I can't depend on others to do it. I just, I'm just that kind of person. It's my mother. She's my responsibility. And I've got to make sure that she's getting what she needs. Okay, um, Helen. Thanks for that. Just, that's just my thought. And you can't do it if you're not there. Okay. Yeah. Well, that is absolutely true. The role of family caregiver is essential. And we certainly, certainly saw that during the pandemic. Um, so, uh, where does this leave us, uh, Wayne Gates? I know you're trying to convince them, but I don't, I don't think that's going to work. Well, you know what? We have to continue to radio stations like yourself, uh, media to put pressure on this government because we know where the, where the short lineups are and they're in for profit homes, which we already know had terrible, terrible outcomes during COVID where a majority of the seniors died in these homes. And for the not-for-profits, what we've seen is uh, that they get better care, better staffing, and better outcomes. Uh, so we have to continue to say to this government what they're doing on Bill 7 is wrong. The fact that they did not even have committee hearings so family members could come and talk about uh, their needs for their family, for their loved ones at a committee hearing. When they did regulations, we asked a question in the House. Before you do the regulations, talk to the families, talk to the nurses, talk to people that are involved with health care and say, what's the best way to move forward? The best way to move forward, in my eyes, quite frankly, is we have to repeal Bill 124. You can't say that you your, your nurses are, are heroes, and then you put in a Bill 124 that caps your wages, which is actually a pay cut because of inflation of about 6%. They're leaving, they're leaving because they're burnt out. They're tired because of Bill 124. Oh. We, we have to make sure uh, that we... We continue to say to this government what you're doing wrong and not stand for it and say we are going to stand up for our moms, our dads, our grandparents, our sister-in-laws, our brother-in-laws, and we're not going to take this bill uh, and we're not going to force people to be forced to pay up to $400 a day in a hospital bed okay. in one of the richest provinces in the country. Okay. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Wayne Gates and uh, Catherine Hoy. Appreciate your time. And uh, thank now... You. Thank you. Now let's thank you. Br- thank you. Now let's bring in David Moucher, who is the CEO of the Windsor Regional Hospital. David, thanks for being with us. Hi, thank you for having me. So you and other hospital CEOs I have heard from, uh, you are in favor of this. Uh, uh, what do you think it will do to alleviate your situation? Okay. Uh, well, thank you for asking. So I've been in healthcare for over 20 years. I can tell you since I started in healthcare, this is one of the issues that has been talked about. And we have a lot of finger pointing going around right now, but now is not the time for finger pointing. Meeting every single of the main three parties had an opportunity to fix this over 20 plus years. Plus years, yeah. (laughs) Now now it takes courage to do this because this is a big political hit. But it needed to be done. And when you talk, like you said, to the healthcare leaders, healthcare individuals that deal with this on a daily basis, this is something that has really troubled the system for quite some time. And at the same time, we just can't focus on the issue of the long-term care part of the spectrum because for Windsor Regional Hospital, over the last three days, we had to cancel 11 surgeries because we don't have enough acute care beds for people to get their surgery done to be in a bed post-surgery. And how many ALC patients do you have in the hospital at any given time? Well, actually, Windsor-Essex has done a really uh, great job with home and community care. So right now, Windsor Regional Hospital, um, we have about 10% of our beds are occupied by ALC, about 30 of them are occupied by ALC waiting for long-term care. And the 30 patients who have been waiting for long-term care have been waiting some 900 plus days. Wow. So almost three years combined waiting 
for a long-term care bed. And that's the issue we're trying to address here. So that's 30 patients out of how many patients altogether? Uh, we have about 600 plus beds at the hospital. So, so it's, no, we're running about 5%. So it's it's a relatively small number. Now you said that you canceled eleven surgeries. Um, if if you had none of these ALC patients, how many of those would you have been able to to do? Well, most likely all of them. And at the same time, the issue is we have some thirty patients right now in the emergency department who have been admitted to an acute care bed and the bed is unavailable. They can't move to it. So what that does, it backs up the whole system. Now, at the same time, this government and hospitals have made significant investments to expand acute care beds over the last three years. So, for instance, Windsor Regional Hospitals, we're running 60 more acute care beds now than what we ran pre-COVID, and we're still full. So when people want to start, you know, the blame game is so easy. Now is not the time to be pointing fingers. Now is the time to have action started. This government is starting it. Is this the solution to all of the problems that healthcare is facing? Of course not. Is, but we got to start somewhere. Is, and this is a big issue. Is this kind of the human equivalent of robbing Peter to pay Paul? So it, it may alleviate the situation in the hospitals, but at the expense of, of some of these elderly patients uh, who need a, a nursing home. Well, no, they are going to be getting a long-term care home. They're going to be going to a long-term care home, not of their first choice, but they're going to be going to one. Well, they're going to be going. We have to remember the designation of ALC for long-term care is made by a physician. So he or she makes that designation that they don't need acute care anymore. It's not made by me. So as a result, it's finding the right place for that patient to be at the right time while we have people who need acute care not being able to gain access to it. And that's what's happening here. And at the same time, we can't provide the social interaction that a long-term care home can provide. We don't have the big dinner rooms, breakfast rooms, that a long-term care facility has for just dining, let alone the social stimulation and interaction. We don't have that. Um, so as a result, it's putting the patient in the right place at the right time, while at the same time allowing the patient who's waiting for the surgery, who has been waiting for years to get that surgery and we don't have to cancel it, and or the patient in the emergency department waiting for a bed to get that bed. And if you want to take it a step further, it provides hopefully comfort to the individual who's leaving us to go to long-term care that if the system runs properly, when they have to come back possibly for an acute care bed or even their loved one or family member, it's available for them or much more accessible to them. Um Final question, David, is in terms of the money, the up to $400 if they refuse. I know that in your hospital, um, the, uh, for ALC patients, the rate, that because they are charged, uh, before the pandemic anyway, was $62.18 a day. Uh, that was waived during the pandemic. But do you have you set a fee that you will charge to people if they say, no, I'm not going? Well, by regulation, it's mandated we're going to have to be charging $400 a day. Oh, is it? Because um, I read I, it, sorry, I, I read it as oh, up to, or is it mandated $400 a day? It's mandated 400 yeah. Wow. And then, and then the issue, well, the issue is, first of all, the cost while they're in an acute care bed is much higher in an acute care hospital than in a long-term care facility. Um, because we didn't have, and again, this is multiple governments, over multiple years, never put into place the legislation that's in place now. And hospitals had to do this all hodgepodge all over the place. And we all have these letters in our files where when a patient would not move to a long-term care home, hospitals one by one would have different letters with different rates that they would charge. So this is not new in the sense of, quote, charging patients who are done their acute care. This is not something new. What it is now is formalized 
standardized and consistent across the province. So you don't have one hospital doing one thing and another hospital doing another. And that's where the problem started. Okay. Uh, thank you so much for clarifying that. David Moucher, CEO of Windsor Regional Hospital. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Okay. I am going to take one very quick call before we take a break, before our next segment. Uh, Mario in Toronto. Hi, Mario. Hi. The lady that one of the previous speakers who mentioned it's going to lead to death, she hit the nail right on the head. Because, let's put it this way, money fixes a lot of things. All the money that Dougie passed over for the car registrations, for the plates, he couldn't have redirected that money to the health care system. He did it to get elected. Now, I'm going to say something. I'm going to go out on a limb here. Quick. quick. I'm going to go and say, look up Klaus Schwab. He's the mouthpiece for the Fourth Reich. Okay, I've got to, I've got to let you go, Mario. Thanks for your call, uh, Mary. Uh, no more than twenty seconds, please. Okay, Libby. Appreciate you having these intelligent people on. All they're doing is talking about the problem. When we have to move people next week, what is the solution? Okay. Well, uh, I don't know if you heard the last interview with uh, the CEO of Windsor Hospital. Yes, I. Okay. Thanks, Mary. Okay. We have got to take a break. And when we come back, something completely different. I am going to be joined by the Chief Herald of Canada when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Last Saturday, the new king, Charles III, was proclaimed in an elaborate ceremony across the pond. There was also a ceremony here with another proclamation read by our chief herald in full regalia. Now, who knew we have a chief herald? I certainly didn't, and I am intrigued. And so I'd like to welcome Dr. Sammy Khaled, Canada's Chief Herald. Dr. Khaled, thanks so much for joining us. Good afternoon, and thank you for your invitation. Okay, well, so tell us, uh, how long have we had a Chief Herald? Has it been around as long as Governor's General, and um, how long have you been in the job? <laughs> in Canada, uh, we have had a Chief Herald since 1988. So it's only been 34 years. Uh, this uh, the, the, the Chief Herald is the director of the Canadian Heraldic Authority, and that office was created as part of the Office of the Governor General, uh, as I said, 34 years ago, uh, to uh, uh, allow Canadians to be able to have access to heraldry and to, um, to get their official institution here in Canada rather than having to go to other countries. And, okay, um my understanding last weekend was that, you know, the king automatically is our king as soon as uh, the queen dies or died. Um, and so did we need to have this additional ceremony? Uh, what was the purpose of it sort of legally? So, so you're correct. The um, Prince of Wales inherits the throne. But uh, there still needs to be official um, documents signed to make it uh, legal. So what happened was this uh, last Saturday, cabinet assembled inside Rideau Hall um, and uh, signed an order in council, which uh, is a legal instrument designed to um, uh, make the, the, the... Make it make it official uh, that there is a, a new king, and uh, and then the document, the order of council, is was signed by the governor general, and I was asked to read that proclamation. The ceremony was was pretty simple in a sense, as I was uh, asked to read the proclamation, and then there was a twenty one gun salute during the uh, singing of. The God Save the King, and then the national anthem. So there's a bit of ceremony, of course, that uh, that is organized for an event like this to mark uh, an important moment in in Canadian history. 
It was certainly not as elaborate as, as you may have seen on the media in other countries, especially in Great Britain. Uh, tell me about your outfit that you were wearing. Uh, to me, it looked like something I might see in a Shakespearean play or something. <laughs> right. So the, the tunic I wore during the proclamation is called a tabard. It's a traditional uniform of heralds uh, that uh, they wear for state occasions or heraldic presentations. This one is a bit different from the other ones that you've seen uh, in, uh, in print or on television um, in that it's all blue. It um, includes maple leaves and uh, the arms of Canada on the sleeves. Generally, tabards always include uh, coats of arms to represent the sovereign or the uh, the person to which we uh, we uh, owe allegiance. In um, so, my counterparts, for example, in Britain, namely Garter King of Arms in England and Lord Lion King of Arms in Scotland, were wearing similar garments. In essence, they were wearing literal coats of arms. Uh, on on themselves. In Canada, the garment is uh, designed to be less flamboyant, and so was the ceremony. Uh, this was a gift to Canada by the Royal Heraldry Society of Canada, uh, and it was created in 2012, as I said, with symbols that we generally recognize, such as the maple leaves and the arms of Canada, but also Indigenous uh, emblems. And And the hat? And the hat as well was designed uh, by uh, our office. So the designer really is, is my colleague, uh, who's also a herald, and her name is Kathy Bursi Sabuham. Uh, so tell me, is is being a chief herald is that a full time job? It is, yes. And and so what I'm, else would you be doing? What will you be doing after uh, the queen is laid to rest and and we move on to whatever comes next? So, so I am the Chief Herald Canada, but mainly the Director of the Canadian Heraldic Authority. And our job is to create coats of arms, flags, and badges for Canadian citizens and organizations. This is a service that is open to every Canadian citizen and every organization. And we're generally very busy uh, creating and studying coats of arms. Uh, for individuals, but also for municipalities or universities or the Canadian Armed Forces, for example. And are, I don't know if, if you've been able to see a change yet, but, uh, you know, so many Canadians have really been watching all of this ceremony and pageantry. Uh, have you seen or do you expect an uptick in interest in these things that will be lasting? I, I do expect that. I feel that uh, this was a great opportunity for Canadians to see that they have institutions like that, that uh, there are heralds in Canada to um, to work on uh, official symbols, but also personal individual symbols. And I think uh, in, in uh, our uh, day and age where uh, people like to uh, to work on their individuality and affirming their identity, they will see that this is an interesting and uh, and good uh, option that is available to them. Uh huh. And and what what if to someone who says you know these are uh, fusty musty things from a bygone age and uh, a colonial era? What what would you say to people who argue that? Well, I'll I'll answer that. Since 1988, since the, the Canadian Heraldic Authority has been created, um, we've made heraldry uh, a Canadian uh, institution and a Canadian tradition. Uh, previously, people felt that uh, heraldry was mostly imported from uh, from elsewhere, and since uh, the CHA was created, uh, we have been able to incorporate symbols uh, from Canadian life and from the fauna and flora of Canada and Indigenous uh, symbols as well uh, to make it uh, really purely Canadian. So it is something that 
in in some circles feels outdated, but we, I, I believe, we the heralds in Canada are really working hard to make very relevant to uh, to Canadians. And uh, you're speaking of indigenous symbols. Uh, uh, many indigenous people um, say that uh, the 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 British Crown has a lot to answer for in terms of the history and uh, you know their involvement with slavery. And um, have you uh, are you in touch with the indigenous authorities? And uh, how involved are they in this? There's been uh, there's been certainly a, a shift in the way uh, we think in Canada about our relationship with uh, with the first peoples. Um, so certainly we are in touch with organizations and the um, our clients who we call petitioners for coats of arms are in touch with uh, indigenous groups whenever they want to include uh, symbols. Uh, that is very important to me and to my office uh, to to be able to do this in a in a in the proper way. Um, we think about those questions very often, and I think uh, I, I think it's very important that we continue to to do so in a respectful way. Uh, and what would you like to leave us with today? Well, one question that I'm asked uh, very often, I've been asked in the past week, is what uh, what happens with the official symbols that we know, such as the uh, coat of arms of Canada that we see on our passports and the royal crown and and so on and so forth. I think uh, these, uh, you know, we'll we'll have to wait for the uh, king to uh, decide, determine, and, and communicate what he his wishes are for his heraldic emblems, because the Royal Arms of Canada are the king's personal um, coat, uh, arms, and uh, and his royal cipher, which we see in, in some cases, or even the representation, the style of the royal crown, are uh, personal choices of his. So, in the meantime, uh, Canadian currency with the Queen's effigy remains valid. Canadian passports remain valid. Uh, the Governor General and the Provincial Lieutenant Governors remain in office. There really are not any major changes uh, until we hear uh, that. Uh, until we hear otherwise. Okay, Dr. Sami Khalid, thank you so much for being with us. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that's all the time we have for today. Free for All Friday is coming up tomorrow. And I know there were quite a few people waiting to talk about the long-term care details. And we have found out more since then, certainly on the money aspect of it. Uh, so please call back then about that and anything else that is on your mind. Right now, that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.